Christian Life Church, a.k.a. Garden Church. I want you to know how great it is to be here today. I have, uh, I have been following and watching your progress from afar uh, ever since April when I was here the last time and we installed Aaron and Faith and the pastoral couple here. And I want you to know that your pastor regularly sends me pictures and email updates of all the things that are happening. And, and my wife and I could hardly wait. And I'm not saying this just to make you feel good with all sincerity. We could hardly wait to get here this weekend and to see all of this firsthand. I am so encouraged by all of the things that I'm seeing and hearing and witnessing. And I hope that you're encouraged as well. Are you encouraged? You yes. need to be. Amen. Absolutely. It is awesome and it is a God thing. Does this thing adjust? Yeah, it's just a little. Up and down. There we go. That's much better. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Problem is, I, I the older I get, the harder it is to see. Can anyone identify? <laughs> when I was Aaron's age, I didn't have to wear glasses, and I could stand across the room and read an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. Now, it's not quite the same. Hey, it's great to be here today. It really is. Um, this is one of the most beautiful places in all of the uh, Southern District. It really is. And uh, Cheryl and I were actually praying in the car as we were on our way in this morning. And just thanking the Lord for all of the beauty that this place offers. And um, I know when you live here, you probably take a lot of that for granted. But I tell you, when, when we come down here, I just think this is one of the most beautiful places in the district. I feel so blessed. Someone, someone asked me this morning, uh, how come I'm not here more often than I am? And I said, well, I have five states to cover. Some of you may not realize that, but uh, my, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. And that's where our office is. But our district comprises not only the state of Mississippi, but all of Alabama, all of Tennessee, the entire Florida panhandle from Tallahassee West, and uh, all of Louisiana uh, east of the Mississippi River. So that's all of Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and all that. So we have a lot of territory that we have to cover. We're on the road a lot. We'd be here far more often than we are if we could. But you're always in our thoughts and you're always in our prayers, so I want you to know that. Well, I'd like to ask you a question this morning. Uh, this is a serious question, but is there anyone here who has ever had a bad day? Let me see your hand. Okay? Most of you are being honest. A few of you are liars here. So we've got two hands up. Now, I ask that question with a full recognition that all of you who were here on August the 29th of 2005, that was a really bad day. But those are, those, those are once-in-a-lifetime kind of bad days, by what we hope, right? Those are the kind of bad days that you hope you only ever experience once in a lifetime. I'm not talking about that kind of a bad day. I'm talking about the kind of a bad day where it's just kind of you get up in the morning, it's a bad day. You ever had one of those? Anyone here ever had a bad week? How about a bad, bad month? Anyone ever had a really bad month? Uh, anybody have a bad life? No, don't raise your hand on that. Okay? No, I, I, <laughs> but has there ever been a time in your life when things have become so challenging, um, your circumstances have become so difficult that you have felt literally like enough is enough already? You with me? 
When you wanted to just kind of scream, stop the world, I, I want to get off. And every direction that you take, it seems like it ends up taking a giant U-turn. Been there, done that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about those days when you get up and you have plans, you have hopes, you have aspirations. But seriously, every direction it seems that you take, every direction that you turn, every road you attempt and try to travel down seems to lead from bad to worse. Things don't turn out. They don't, they don't go the way that they were supposed to go. And friends, when that happens, when we are faced with one difficulty after another, one hardship after another, one challenge after another, what happens is oftentimes we get discouraged, don't we? We can get disappointed. We might even progress to the point where we become disenfranchised and just dis uh, disenchanted with God, if we were honest. And we've all been in those kinds of situations. We've all had those kinds of days, those kinds of weeks, and uh, where, we, where we're faced with, it seems, problems, difficulties, challenges, hardships, the list could go on. And I want you to know this morning that no one is immune from those kinds of face, those kinds of challenges that we face. I'm not. No one is. No one is exempt from those kinds of things. So the question becomes that I want to address with you this morning, when we're faced with those kinds of circumstances and situations, how do we respond? How do we handle them? What is our reaction when we are faced with life's challenges? How do we handle the U-turns, the disappointments, the, the frustrations, the roadblocks that, that come into our lives? What is it that we depend upon to get us through those things, life's difficulties when they come our way? If you have your Bibles with you this morning or your phone or your iPad or your device or whatever it is, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, and I'd like to look at uh, two different accounts this morning from Luke's Gospel in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. And uh, one is the story of a widow woman. The second is the story of a prominent religious leader, a ruler of the synagogue, we're told, who find themselves in the midst of an impossible situation from which it appears, as we read these texts, that there is absolutely no way out of the situations they're faced with. Until, until they come face to face with a man by the name of Jesus, who turns their hopeless situation into an opportunity for a brand new beginning. So let's look at these stories if we might. The first is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, and I'd like to pick up in verse 11. Um, I know that probably everyone here has a different translation of the Bible. But uh, I think you can follow along with me. This morning I'm actually using the New International Version, and I hardly ever use that. But I love the way that it tells this particular story, so follow along with me. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, 
And those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So Jesus, we are told, is on his way to a town called Nain. And the text tells us that his disciples are with Jesus as he's traveling to this town or through this town. And a very large crowd of people were following Jesus and the disciples. It seemed that happened a lot. Everywhere Jesus went, the crowds followed, didn't they? And this was no exception. A large crowd of people are with him. And we aren't told specifically why Jesus went to the town of Nain. The only thing that we're told is simply that Jesus went there. And Jesus and his disciples, as they approach the town gates to enter into this little village, observe a dead person being carried out by a funeral procession to the outskirts of this town. Obviously to the cemetery where this young man was probably going to be buried. Now, when you read that, that in and of itself is really not an uncommon thing. I mean, people die all of the time. Even in small towns, people die. And so funerals are held when someone passes away to grieve and commemorate the loss of the loved one that has passed away. But in this particular instance, the individual that has died, we are told, is the only son of his mother who is also, we are told, a widow. Now, I point that out because I do not want you to miss the significance of what is taking place here. Follow me with this now. This woman had already lost her husband. She's a widow, right? And now, we are told, she has lost her only son. And what I want us to understand is this is not just a passing statement. Luke is very, very careful to point out the fact the fact that this woman had previously lost her husband and now she has lost her only son. The reason that is important is because in this part of the world, the culture dictated that only men were allowed to work. Women were not allowed to work outside of the home or to be compensated for their labors if they did work. And the reason was that in this particular society, in that culture, and 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 don't get mad at me for pointing this out, ladies, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm only just telling you what's going on here, okay? But, but, but in this part of the world, in that day, the position of women was considered to be beneath that of men. In fact, I would point out to you that it is still that way even today in the Middle East, is it not? In that part of the world? So the reality was that this woman's only means of being cared for, this woman's only means of having a livelihood and earning an income was now what? Gone. It's, it's vanished. Any hope, any hope at all that she could have possibly had in terms of her life's future and security seemed at least now to be all but hopeless. Her life had taken a major U-turn. Her life had gone from bad, the fact that she was a widow with no husband to take care of her, to worse. Now her only son, 
was now passed from the scene as well. And the question that had to be foremost in her mind was what? What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? What could she do? Who could possibly provide for her most basic needs in this situation that she's now faced and confronted with? There, there's no one left to take care of her, no one to watch out for her, no one to provide for her financial need. Essentially, this woman was hopeless. She had no hope. Her situation was hopeless. And her world, which had only days before made all kinds of sense, now made no sense at all. And, and all, all that she had now were questions to which there seemed to be no answers. Friends, the bottom line was quite simply this. This poor widow woman was having a very, very bad day. As bad as it gets, quite frankly. And from all outward circumstances, it appears to her at least that it would affect the rest of her life. And who could blame this poor woman for thinking that way or feeling that way? Amen? Amen. I suspect that I would have felt probably exactly the same way as you would have as well. Her life, her situation seemed hopeless. Hopeless. Did you glue my pages together? <laughs> I kid you not. All I have to say that when we come to verses uh, to verse 13 of, of Luke chapter 7. This is one of those verses that I really think if you underline in your Bible or you highlight, I do that in my Bible all the time. I write in my Bible. I write in the margins. I highlight and underline. It's okay. You're not desecrating God's Word by doing that. This is one of those verses that, quite frankly, I really think you need to underline and remember because it tells us that when the, law, the Lord saw her, listen to this, His heart went out to her. Friends, listen to me. When you hear that, when you read that verse, what does that communicate to you? What does God's Spirit say to your heart when you see those words, when you hear those words, the fact that the Lord's heart went out to this woman? Let, let me just share with you, let me just tell you what I really think the Spirit of God wants and desires for us to gain and to glean from Jesus' words here. I think he wants us to understand that when life short circuits and seems to fall apart, and it does that sometimes, amen? amen? But when things seem to just go from bad to worse, when we're chugging along and, and bam, this, this major U-turn just kind of rises up in front of us, this roadblock faces us, what is generally our first reaction? What is generally our first response when we're faced with those kinds of things? Is it similar to that of this woman's? Do we have, do we have a tendency to panic? or at the very least become fixated on the worst possible case scenario? You see, I can't get inside your mind. Only God can do that. Only you can do that. But I have to believe that most people probably respond a lot like I do. I can't be the only person this way in the world. I hope I'm not. But I sometimes tend to see the glass half empty rather than half full. Are you with me? It's so easy for us to see everything that can possibly go wrong. Everything that does not look good. And we focus upon our perception of the hopelessness of the situation. 
Maybe it's our lack of finances. There's too much month at the end of money. Or our employment situation, which may hang in the balance and be all but certain, in fact, very uncertain. Or, or maybe the kids are making poor decisions, poor lifestyle choices that are breaking your heart. Or a marriage or relationship is in difficulty and, 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 and it's in turmoil and you see it heading nowhere but toward disaster. Perhaps you're single and you're concerned or worrying about finding a mate. Is there even anyone out there for me? Or maybe you look at your life or your job or your circumstance and, and you see the future as hopeless or at the very least you see it as uncertain. And you know what? I'm not going to lie to you this morning. It may be uncertain. It might even appear to be hopeless. Your circumstance, your situations, things in your life might very well be bad right now. I'm not going to deny that. It may be absolutely true that right now you have no clue how it's all going to turn out. In fact, you might be convinced that it can't turn out. But I'm here to tell you this morning, and God wants you to understand and to know this, and to grasp this truth, that while you cannot see the future, my dear friends, God can. God can. Listen, can I tell you something? 15, almost 16 years ago now, uh, it was in February of 2004, my wife and I, our life literally derailed. Literally, it derailed. Our son, David, who was 17 years old at the time and in high school, was diagnosed with cancer. And I don't need to tell you that our world was literally rocked. I will never forget the day that we sat in the doctor's office and our son had been there previously and had a series of tests and we were going back for the doctor's report. And I was, I, you know, I'm Mr. Positive. I thought everything was going to be fine. My wife was worried. She was kind of angst about all of this. And we sat down and the doctor sat, down, sat us down with our son there in the room and he said, he looked us in the eye and he said, there's no good way to tell you folks this, but you need to know that your son has cancer. He had thyroid cancer. It was in advanced stages. We hadn't caught it soon enough. Long story of how we even found it out, but, uh, but the bottom line was it was like stage three already, and they had to completely remove his thyroid and all the lymph nodes that were around it, and, and then he had to go through chemotherapy treatment and radiation treatment, and as he was going through that, remember he's 17 years old, as he was going through that, they had to give him radiation, and it literally made him radioactive. And, and we had to put him in a room in our house, and we couldn't even go to the room where he was. We had, to, we had to feed him off paper plates and plastic utensils, because if he touched the glass plates and the, and the silverware, it literally would have made it radioactive and harmful to the rest of the members of the family. And so he was in quarantine for a long period of time, and it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible situation that we went through. But we got through that, and, and, and uh, on the day of our 25th wedding anniversary, April the 5th, 2005, we were sitting, 2004, we were sitting in the hospital 
Our 25th wedding anniversary, and our son was getting his first dose of radiation therapy on the day of our 25th wedding anniversary. It went from bad to worse, because after that, the bills started coming in. And I remember going to the mailbox, and even if you have insurance, and we had good insurance, but you know, when you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical bills and the insurance pays 80% of it, the other 20% can add up real quick, real fast. Let me tell you. And we would go to the we would go to the mailbox and we'd open up the mail and there would be another bill for for you know forty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars and and I just didn't think that we would ever live long enough that we would ever get all of those medical bills paid off. And my wife and I had always had a wonderful relationship in our marriage. We had always communicated through things in the way that was appropriate, and we we dialogued, but but. We, were, we, we had a son with cancer, and the medical bills were piling up, and I was in a high-stress job at that time, and, and, and all of these things kind of converged together like the perfect storm, and we started sniping at each other, and we didn't communicate well anymore. And I'm ashamed to admit this to you, but we actually separated. We actually went our different ways for a period of several weeks. And I was working in a district office at the time. I was church planning director. And you can't have that kind of a position and be separated from your wife. And so I was let go. I was fired from my job. And so we had a son with cancer and mounting medical bills. And now I have no job and no way of earning an income. And it just went from bad to worse. We just, it just seemed like our life situation was out of control. Our life, can I just be honest with you? Our life at that point in time seemed hopeless. It seemed hopeless. But what's the operative word that I just used there? It seemed hopeless. Because friends, we don't always see what God sees. We, we can't know what God knows. And five years later, our son's cancer came back again. Now he's in college in Nebraska. We're living in Arizona. He has to leave college and come back and live with us for a number of months because he couldn't take care of himself. And this time, the cancer had gone into his lymph nodes, and there's like 30 lymph nodes on each side of your neck. And all of the, all of the lymph nodes on, on one side of his neck had to be removed. And out of the 30 lymph nodes, like 26 of those 30 lymph nodes were cancerous. But the next time that we went through it, the cancer was far more serious. The surgery was far more extensive and far more serious. But the next time, we had learned from the first situation. And we got through it the next time without all the incidents that we'd gone through the first time. Because if you don't learn from your past mistakes, you're destined to repeat them all over again. Amen? My wife will tell you, if you asked her, we've been married, we will come up with 40 years on April the 5th, this coming year, 40 years of marriage. She will tell you that they've all been great except for one. That 25th year wasn't a good year for us. But all the rest have been great. But we, Cheryl and I, look at how God has brought us to where he has brought us now, and over and over and over again, it seems almost possible, almost miraculous, that God has opened up doors that he has to us. Because, can I just be honest, I felt like, what we had gone through in the situation that we confronted, I really felt like my life was over. I felt like my ministry was over. Who would ever want to hire somebody like me? I was tarnished. I was blighted. But God in his goodness and mercy 
brought all of that to fruition. But friends, we need to recognize and we need to understand that we serve a God of hope. We serve a God of hope. And beloved, like this widow, when we don't know which way is up or which way is down anymore and our situation and our circumstances and life look hopeless, God sees that. His heart goes out to us. It really does. Why is it so hard for us to believe that? And so he says to this woman, don't cry. And in verse 14, I love this verse, we read that Jesus went up and He touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still and He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I mean, how cool is that? So much more I could say about this passage, but I very, very quickly want to tie this together with another story in the next chapter, chapter 8. Similar situation, similar event, similar passage, just one chapter later, beginning at verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed Him, for they were all expecting Him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now there's a sharp contrast between this passage and the similar story that's revealed just one chapter earlier in Luke chapter 7. Both of these are individuals that are faced with insurmountable circumstances. I mean, let's be honest, death is pretty insurmountable. Amen? Amen. But this time, Jesus' encounter, His demonstration of compassion, is not to a poor, insignificant, nameless widow that doesn't have anything. This time, His encounter is with a prominent religious leader. In fact, we're told that this individual is a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. And the thing that is a comfort to me in this passage is the reminder that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Listen, friends, it doesn't, matter to you, it doesn't matter you see from Jesus' perspective whether or not you are a person of means or whether you are a person of no means at all. It doesn't matter to Jesus whether you are well-educated or whether you are completely uneducated. It doesn't matter one iota to Jesus whether or not you are a person of prominence or whether or significance in the eyes of the world or whether in the eyes of the world you are a nobody because with Jesus, listen to me, friends, there are no nobodies. Every person in Christ's eyes has equal significance, equal importance, equal standing. And I'm not going to tell you that's how things are in every single church because regrettably there are some who don't possess the mind of Christ. And there are some churches that don't look at people that way. If you're not like us, don't bother to join us. Thank God your church isn't one of those. The fact is, and it's sad but true, but there are many, many lost people in this world today who will not associate with the church because of the hypocrisy that they see within it. But that doesn't change the fact that God is not that way, friends. You see, it doesn't matter who or what you are in the eyes of the world that is important to God. What matters to God is what you are on the inside. God has made that very, very clear in His Word. Do you remember the story when God once sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the one that God had chosen, that He had set apart to replace Saul as king over Israel. Do you remember that story? 
If you don't remember that Samuel is the prophet and he's sent to the house of Jesse, God has told him, go to the house of Jesse. One of, the, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king over Israel. He's going to replace the king, king Saul. And so, so Samuel goes and, and Jesse has eight sons. And every single one of those sons is paraded before him. And in verse 6 of chapter 16, 1 Samuel, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, because Eliab was tall and handsome and rugged. But the Lord said to Samuel, listen to this, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's right. And here in Luke chapter 8, this is a man of significance. This is a man of prominence. This is a man of influence who's a religious leader of the synagogue. And the fact that he would even come to Jesus in the first place is kind of strange because Pharisees and Sadducees really didn't have much to do with Jesus unless they were criticizing or condemning him, weren't they? But this religious leader comes to Jesus uh, and, and, and in Jairus' case, we see a desperate cry of a man, a father whose world is broken. And we read in verse 41, chapter 8, he came and he fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And here is a man, even though he's a prominent religious leader in the synagogue, with a broken heart. His life feels ruined. His world is unraveling before him because he doesn't have any answers. And how will this ever work out and be fixed? And in his heart of hearts, he's desperate. The only emotions that he can feel are the emotions of hurt and the emotion of pain. And verse 49, pick up. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I read those words and I think, how could anyone be that callous? How could anyone be that abrupt and rude that your daughter has just died and you come up and say, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore? Obviously, this person had the gift of encouragement, amen? <laughs> Listen, there are no words in the world that can hurt a parent any more than those that are repeated right here. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, in the world that is more devastating than losing a child. If you have ever had to face that circumstance, my heart goes out to you. God's heart goes out to you. I know what it was like to have a son with cancer and the horrible, horrible emotions that accompanied that. I cannot imagine losing a child. And Jesus' response to Jairus is so, so simple here. Chapter 8, verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And she will be healed. Amen. And you know what? I have to give Jairus credit here because if that had been me, just being honest, if that had been me, and Jesus had said those same words to me, and probably to you as well if you're honest with yourself, do you know what my response would have undoubtedly been after Jesus said those words to me? Very respectfully, I would have looked at Jesus and I would have said, you're nuts. She's dead. It's over. It's finished. You arrive too late. 
But beloved, if you don't get anything else on what I have to say to you this morning, I want you to hear and understand this one important fact. It is never, ever, 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 ever too late with Jesus. Because Jesus Christ specializes in and fixes hopeless cases. And while Jesus may not always show up when you expect Him to show up, listen to me friends, Jesus is never late. Write that down. Don't ever forget that. Jesus may not always show up when you expect Him to, but He's never late. He's never late. And I can testify to that experientially. Jesus specializes in and fixes hopeless cases. Verse 51. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter and James and John and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and warning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. Talk about an understatement, huh? They were astonished. A lot of things I could say about these verses, but as I wrap this up, let me just say this. There's really only one thing that I believe Jesus wants you to know and understand this morning, and that is this. It does not matter, friends. It does not matter what your situation in life is. It doesn't matter how hopeless or helpless or defeated or rejected or impossible or insurmountable or anything else life may be dealing with you right now. Jesus specializes in and fixes hopeless cases. And listen, friend, no matter how it may feel to you, Jesus wants you to hear and He wants you to understand the same word of promise that He spoke to this poor widow mother and to Jairus as a dad, as a father. These are the words He wants you to hear. I know if things look terrible that it can seem hopeless, but you are not dead, you are alive. Mm -hmm. Your life is not over. Because nothing is beyond the ability of Jesus. He can restore broken dreams. He can repair shattered lives. He can mend wounded hearts. And this morning I believe that Jesus is saying, perhaps to some of you, He's saying, I can fix whatever it is that is getting you down today. Whatever it is that is standing between you and God, if you will let Him do it, Jesus can fix it. I'd just like to invite you to just bow your head right now and close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or embarrass you in any way, shape, or form, but I just would really like to pray for you right now. Maybe as, as the Word of God has been preached this morning, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart, and you're saying, Pastor Phil, everything you're saying, I identify with that. My life is exactly what you're talking about this morning. I just want to pray for you. Can I do that this morning? But I'd like to know who you are. No one's looking around. But could you just very quickly just put your hand up and say, I need prayer? Yes, yes, I see those hands. Yes, you can put them down. Anyone else? Yes, I see hands all over the room. You can put them down. Yes. Maybe you are here this morning 
And the one thing that you need fixed more than anything else is, is you don't know if you have a, a, a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You, 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 you just are not certain of that. Maybe, maybe you don't even know how to make that happen. And if, if you've never done that, this morning could be the day that you come to trust Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, He's faithful and He is just to forgive you of your sin. And He will cleanse all that sin in your life. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wants to do that for you today if you've never done that. But you have to confess. You have to acknowledge before God that you need a Savior. He, he, he stands at the door and knocks. He, he wants to come into your life, but He will never force His way in. But you can invite Him in. Is there anyone here today that has never done that, but you'd like to do that this morning? Let me just see your hand very quickly. Is there anyone? Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. I want to pray for you. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide both bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And your word has had its way in the hearts of a number of people that are in this room this very morning. And I do not know what the needs are that each and every one of these people are facing. I do not know what the challenges are that they're, that they're confronted with, but you do. And I pray that right now in the quietness of these moments, as they, by, by prayer, lift them before you and acknowledge what they are, that you in your, in your spirit's loving mercy would meet them where they are right here, right now. And that, and that you, would, you would give them hope and that you would give them encouragement and that you would help them to know that you specialize in fixing hopeless situations. You specialize in fixing broken things. There is nothing so broken that you cannot fix it. And for those individuals, Father, that raised their hand and said that they're just not certain if they have a relationship with you or not, may they have the boldness and the courage to seek out either myself or Pastor Aaron or Faith or my wife and say, can you just share with me how I can know that I can know that I can know that I can have a relationship with God and inherit the gift of eternal life? We would count it a privilege to do that with them today, Father. So thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you most of all for your spirit that speaks its word to us. In Jesus' name.